welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science. Each week we meet a different scientist and get to hear the stories behind the discoveries that they make. This episode I'm joined by an entomologist, PhD candidate, and fellow podcaster. It is Ravindra Palavelli Natimi. Can I call you Rav? Yeah. Rav, Ravi. thanks for yeah. coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, I just wanted to ask, what do self-driving cars have to do with ants okay so they don't have anything to do with it directly but so the way ants navigate uh, can be can have implications in the way uh, you can build self-driving cars okay because um, if you consider ants navigating they use a lot of visual cues uh, for example like a tree or a building uh, to know where they're going um, mm-hmm. or, and where their nest is or the way, where their food is. Um, so when they do this, they constantly use various cues from outside. Some of them include visual cues and they also use cues from the sky, which we can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you know how ants manage to navigate in a complex environment, we can um, we can use the same uh, rules or same algorithms to make self-driving cars mm-hmm. because so the c- kind of problem that they're solving is essentially similar uh, because sel- self-driving cars have to constantly monitor the external surroundings. Yeah. Uh, for example, if a, they have to see whether what the traffic signal says or what, whether there's a pedestrian walking across mm-hmm. and they have to make decisions based on the visual cues that they see. Yeah. So, so essentially, if we can understand how insects like ants visually navigate in a complex environment, we can uh, um, potentially use this. So this question was, I guess, based on an article that you published in the conversation a couple of months ago. Yes. Talking about ants being able to navigate forwards and backwards. Right. Uh, so, so this was actually my first uh, science communication piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a paper um, about ants carrying food backwards. And it's actually quite common. You can see a um, lot of ants, even in your garden, uh, carrying heavy food backwards. So, so the ants that you see in general in your houses form chemical trails and they, they carry food on, on the chemical trails uh, while traveling on the chemical, in the chemical trails. Mm-hmm. Um, But there are a lot of ants that go out looking for food alone and when they find really heavy food that they can't carry, they end up pulling it backwards um, uh, and walking towards their home. So when when they're coming out of their nest to look for food, what they do or what some of the ants that that are studied do is they look for the visual cues so that they can remember how to get back uh, to to their home. Um, so, so if they see something like a big tree yeah, on so the right this, out of their nest, they know to look for that again on the way back. They sort of sort of have a representation of that. Maybe not exactly the way we see, but yep. they have a representation of that. And when they're walking back, coming back home with food while walking backwards, it's 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 a different visual um, cue for them. It's not the same cue that they had uh, memorized. It's the it's the opposite view, mm-hmm. but they still manage to do it um, somehow. Um, perhaps just by looking at visual cues at at regular intervals, 
and uh, and correcting their bearing as they as they walk backwards. So are you investigating Ant Vision specifically to see how we can apply it to things like robotics, or do you just like ants? Yes, their inherent loveliness. Yeah. So the second option, <laughs> we just love ants because they're awesome. <laughs> We're just trying to understand the awesomeness of ants, yeah. basically. And so what specifically are you looking at? Are you looking at how to use cues? Or? Um, so, uh, so the main theme of uh, my PhD mm -hmm. um, and what I'm interested in currently is miniaturization, uh, which is uh, essentially, for example, if you um, go back to 1950s, 5 MB hard drive used to be the size of a big room, but now you can you can have like tens of thousands of more data in a small chip in your micro uh, in your in your mobile. Yeah. Um, so that's that's miniaturization. Okay. But uh, we have the same thing in animals as well. Over evolutionary times, mm -hmm. some animals become smaller and smaller because it's somehow advantages to them. For yeah. example, getting getting. Um, finding new niches or finding new uh, food uh, resources when they get really smaller. Um, and there are a lot of other advantages for them to become miniaturized. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, but my, my research looks at how miniaturization affects their brains and how that in turn affects their behavior. So as in you're looking at the fact that ants or particular ants have gotten smaller over time or are you just comparing Big ones to little ones. Yeah, so I, I'm 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 comparing bigger ants to the smaller ones. Yeah, I mean to us, I guess all ants look small, but when you get down to their scale, there's huge variation. Exactly the size, even within a species, right? That's that's exactly the same. Um, that's the reason why I'm working on ants. Actually, why ants have kind of the best um, system to study this problem because you see large variation in the sizes mm -hmm. and um, and why do you see large variation in the sizes and how come um, many ants have miniaturized and what advantages do they have and how does it affect what are the costs and benefits of them becoming really small mm -hmm. uh, is something that I'm interested in. Why would an ant want to be small? Um, but there are a lot of reasons. Um, for example, you can um, find new niches. Mm -hmm. You can you can live in a really tiny place. If you are bigger, you probably wouldn't be able to live there. For example, mm -hmm. under a tiny rock. For example, um, and you can invest less in in the worker force um, mm -hmm. because ant systems, the social system of ants works differently because there's only usually there's one. Um, reproductive individual and rest of them just work for the colony. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you can make really smaller individuals as workers, you're not investing much in them. Mm -hmm. And um, and you still get the work done by having really tiny um, ants, but you probably change your foraging to something else, maybe foraging from really big things to small smaller things. Mm -hmm. And you could yeah, you can you can actually you can probably avoid uh, predators by being tiny. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there are a lot of lot of um, advantages, and we still know very few uh, things about um, how they benefit from being small. 
But you're looking specifically at vision and how vision changes yeah. with size. Uh, yeah. So, so miniaturization obviously has both costs and benefits. Yeah. Um, so the benefits were the ones that we just discussed, but it also has costs because, for example, if they have to maintain the bigger brain's uh, um, size of their ancestors, they have to pay higher metabolic costs because maintaining a bigger brain is um, really expensive when it comes to metabolism. So, you ha- so the ants have to eat a lot. Mm-hmm. But uh, the smaller ants need not do that if they can just probably have a smaller brain or maybe get rid of a few a few circuits and compromise with some behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps not being able to see clearly is one of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm looking at how miniaturization affects their vision and how that in turn affects their visual navigation, whether, they, whether the smaller ants are actually as good as the bigger ants when it comes to visual navigation. And so did your interest in this start with an interest in vision or with an interest in the ants themselves? With interest in ants. I'm interested in anything related to ants. Really? Yeah. Go tell me why. What is it about ants? A um, lot of things. Not just one thing. Um, for me, uh, I started off with actually not knowing anything about ants uh, back in 2011. Mm-hmm. That's when I started uh, learning about ants. First of all, they're, they're everywhere. They're, they're kind of more very successful in many places of the world and the social system is so complicated sometimes and there's a lot of things happening there and they also so the kind of interactions that they have with ecosystem is is quite interesting as well for example they kind of do a version of farming Mm -hmm. uh, like we do and long before we even started uh, farming there are these uh, ants called leafcutter ants that cut the leaves and take them inside their nest and grow fungi. And that's what they farm. And they, they feed on on the fungus, not on the leaves that they take. Mm-hmm. And um, they also take slaves, which I don't really take any moral implications from that. But <laughs> but there are a lot, lot of such um, um, interesting things that you wouldn't even think animals can uh, animals can evolve such a yeah. such a beautiful behavior. Actually, the last podcast I recorded was with Luke Holman, and he was talking about the fact that there are police ants that will essentially punish other worker ants that aren't working hard enough. Um, I'd never heard of this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't know about not working hard and getting punished, but uh, I do know that there are police policing there, there is policing it's similar to the way our social system works because you need to have if you need to have order you need to have some sort of policing mm-hmm. uh, so that's another thing about ants from being solitary many animals have are gradually have gradually evolved to be social yeah. at different stages of being social and ants and hu- humans are social for example and it's important to understand how this if, this uh, being social evol- uh, mm. evolved in, t- in time or through time. Yeah. Um, and ants actually have so many things that, uh, that you can learn from um, about their uh, social organization. One of them is having policing. And I guess your 
uh, interest in ants then is relatively recent. Where did your fascination with the natural world start then? Were you always a, a little creepy crawly interested person or? No, actually I wasn't really into biology at all uh, <laughs> until 2010. Uh, I didn't even think I would do what I'm doing now. I, yeah, like anyone in, in India, it's usually you either do an engineering degree or, or a medicine degree mm-hmm. after you are uh, grade 12. Uh, but for me, I wasn't really interested in either of them, but I wanted to try something else. And I ended up um, taking a bachelor's degree in science. And um, it, it was nice for me because I I had to take all the courses from all the subjects, chemistry, physics, maths, biology, and everything, mm-hmm. and and figure out which one I really like. Mm-hmm. So that, that, was, that was kind of a good thing that happened to me. And um, so I volunteered in 2011 um, in a rainforest in India, in the northeast part of India. And that's when I got interested in ants because I got to see them in action, mm-hmm. which I never, I never even bothered to look at ants. I just knew that there were black ants and red ants, like yeah. anyone else would, would say. Um, but yeah, so when I, when I actually got in the field and observed them, doing various things that I wouldn't even think that ants could do. I got really interested in that and I started off reading about different books and I, my, so the first book of uh, about ants that I read was uh, written by my current PhD supervisor, Ajay Narendra. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of start, sparked an interest in me and then, and I never stopped after that. <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, I've been learning, I, even, even today, I've, I've been learning a lot of things about ants that that still amazed me. Yeah. So if, as you were saying, the norms in, in India is to go in engineering or medicine, yeah. was it sort of necessary to, to pursue this line of research outside of India or what brought you to Australia? Okay. Um, <laughs> so India has a lot of hands, actually. Quite a few, um, quite a bit of diversity in, 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 in ants and there's a lot of um, things one can do in India. But um, I came here mainly because I liked the lab that I was applying to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to learn more about navigation. I didn't know much about navigation. Yeah. Um, that's something that I got interest, interested in while I was studying ants and wars back in India. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I came for the ants and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and for also the lab that I was applying to. Yeah. So what were you working on with wasps then? Um, so so what, with wasps, I was um, so I was looking at these paper wasps called uh, Rapalidia marginata. Um, so these um, are eusocial wasps. They're kind of um, a bit a step down to the completely social ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, uh, that's what makes them uh, really interesting, them being eusocial. And I was looking at how they use chemicals to know who is who mm-hmm. and know whether whether a wasp is a male or a female. Mm-hmm. So um, that actually um, made me um, interested in the social organization in general of all the animals, yeah. not just ants. Yeah. Being a, a fellow insect person, this might seem like a weird question, but it's something that I've been thinking about <laughs> lately. Do you feel a, an affinity for little things 
Like, are they just a little bit more intriguing than large animals? Yeah, um, I think I started feeling more to the little things after <laughs> I got into ants, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. And and when you look under the microscope, when you look at, for example, I was I was working on ant um, aphid mutualism and tree hopper um, mm. uh, uh, mutualism. So when I looked at the uh, uh, tree hoppers under microscope, they they kind of seemed like a miniature version of something spooky that you see in science fiction. <laughs> it's it's just that they've been miniaturized. They're, they're tiny, really tiny, that you can't see yeah. unless you see under the microscope. But that's what makes them beautiful, right? That they're, they're tiny and they're cool to look at, but we should we should be really looking at the smaller ones as well, not just the ones that you can actually see, like the big mammals, that you can just see yeah. mammals and birds. But there are really tiny things that have a lot of interesting things to learn from. Hmm. I mean, that the, the aphid thing is a great example because ants are essentially keeping them. They've almost domesticated them, yeah. really, and they keep these little colonies of aphids and feed off their little sugary oozes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. It, it, it's, it's fascinating because here are two, two different things, two different biological um, um, phenomena happening separately, and they evolve to cooperate together mm-hmm. because the aphids are actually just trying to suck uh, phloem uh, sap from the plant as much as possible. But in that process, they... Since the phloem is full of sugar, mm-hmm. they end up having so much sugar that they don't even require. But they need other nutrients mm. when they have to do that. So they keep sucking um, till they find enough nutrients, enough other nutrients. So this essentially leads to them excreting sugar, which is honeydew, <laughs> which one can actually taste, although I haven't tried. <laughs> um, but ants make use of this because ants like sugar. Yeah. And they just consume this uh, excreta, and they they provide their services by protecting them from um, beetles um, or ladybugs that eat eat these yeah. aphids. So something, two different things, having two different needs, and um, you know, services exchanging, and they evolve randomly. That's yeah. that's 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 a very cool thing that evolution has come up with. Yeah, so it's actually the same way that. Shepherds would keep a flock of sheep and protect them from predators and invest in them to benefit from wool. Exactly. Ants do the same thing with aphids. Yeah, this is this is this is another reason why ants keep amazing me a lot because there's so many things that they have uh, figured out through evolution, mm-hmm. uh, and we we've, we've also um, in in a way figured out versions of that. Yeah. For example, I recently read about uh, ants using the same algorithm that's internet that that is used by internet. They call it Antonet <laughs> <laughs> because ants use it. <laughs> so yeah, go on. <laughs> yes, it's it's essentially when you send an email yeah. through email attachment, it'll send um, the files in small packets. So you're uh, and um, depending on and. Once the packets reach the destination, they send an acknowledgement back uh, in little packets again to your uh, to your um, to your place to your laptop, for example. Uh, so here, so if you consider ants foraging outside, mm-hmm. 
So the speed of acknowledgement here in the internet case is dependent on the availability of bandwidth. Mm-hmm. So if you have higher bandwidth, you can send faster, send the files faster and get the acknowledgements faster. Mm-hmm. So you're getting a feedback from the uh, acknowledgement uh, depending on your bandwidth. Yeah. Uh, so the same problem exists in, in ants. For example, when they go out foraging in, in the hot desert, uh, and if they find food, which is uh, the bandwidth, if they find less food, you find less number of ants getting back home, which is an acknowledgement for the ants Whoa. that are inside. If they find more food, that means larger bandwidth, and you find more ants coming back with food. Yeah. Uh, that's a feedback system to the ants that are inside to decide whether they have to go out foraging or not. So essentially just counting how often or how many ants are coming back. Exactly. Using that to judge how valuable... Exactly. That food sources. Yeah. And they have come up with this algorithm through evolution. And if you can understand a lot of um, rules that these um, little ants use, so they can potentially be used in many ways. Mm-hmm. So you're sold on, on ants then, that's it, for the rest of your life? Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm starting <laughs> to get interested in everything in general, actually. Um, <laughs> I got into biology because of ants, yeah. but um, I'm interested in anything now, um, anything that sounds interesting, <laughs> essentially, yeah. Well, I mean, lately you have become very interested and productive in, in outreaching, in communication. You even have your own podcast. Yeah, so it, it again started uh, in the beginning of my PhD. It's, it's the same thing. I, I had no idea of science communication before starting I had some idea, but I had never thought of doing much about it. Yeah. Um, they started off with um, there, there are a lot, lot of lot, lot of um, ex- um, instances that motivated me to do this, and one of them was uh, while I was doing my field work in Canberra, uh, I was just staring at the ground in the middle of the road, not in the middle of the road, close to the road. Uh, but a lot of people used to stare at me because I used to stare, stare <laughs> always. So the whole day I used to be uh, watching the ground, and they thought, "Why am I watching the ground the it's whole actually day?" Actually, really good way of spotting a biologist out in their natural habitat is some idiot on the side of the road staring at a tree trunk for four hours, <laughs> probably doing research. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so, so that attracted a lot of people for good or bad. I don't know, but I. I I was kind of too shy. That's one of the reasons um, I was very uncomfortable. I usually can't keep up conversations. Um, um, <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so I, I ended up getting a lot of questions from these people that, that just passed by and and they, they asked. And when I say I'm looking at ants, they, I can see a big smile in their face. And, mm. and they're like, they have a lot of questions to ask when yeah. I say, that, why are you doing this? And um, do they, I mean, this kind of happens to me a lot. Do they immediately assume you're working in pest control? Um, <laughs> they, they do assume I'm working on something that is directly useful to humans. Yeah. But I'm working on something that is not directly useful. You never know when it would be useful. But yeah. I'm working on something interesting yeah. that is worth studying. Uh, but I end up explaining why I work on it and what are the users and I end up telling them a lot of stories about ants and they get really interested in their ants yeah. and they tell me their stories about their ants and yeah. I, I think it kind of started started with that it's kind of communicating my science to general audience directly by yeah. talking to them but um, I also uh, so 
I when I when I went back and I thought I should probably get reach more people. Um, so I started with uh, um, writing an article to the conversation that really got a lot of attention, and mm-hmm. and I ended up um, I I got a call from uh, uh, ABC Radio uh, the next day asking <laughs> for an interview, which was really exciting and scary. <laughs> it was live, and yeah. I never never been in a live. Uh, um, show before I was yeah, and and then and then I just got really just got a kick out of it <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> so I sort of um, I'm, I'm I'm I've been interested in multimedia um, mm-hmm. since my bachelor so I started off um, making some small videos um, I write articles I have a blog I make simple doodles I recently made a one-page um, explanation for why I'm doing what I'm doing for my PhD mm-hmm. through cartoons. Um, and I also started my podcast because that's another way to get, reach more people and tell people about... Because a lot of people assume, when you do when you say science, they assume there's a direct use to humans. For example, if I might be studying some disease, mm. that, that can, I can cure some disease by doing my science but most often we just do basic research um, and they don't have direct users and they mm. don't need to because because one you get to learn a lot of things about um, about what's out there and and you and two you never know when you're going to use it because there are a lot of such um, examples people just studied uh, for the sake of it and now we use a lot of things about from those studies uh, to apply to the use of humanity. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example of why this sort of research is possible. I mean, if you always go out with the intention of finding something that can be applied to a particular problem, you're only ever going to have a very sort of narrow perspective on the world and your things. And I feel like whenever you're out just exploring and finding out things about the world for its inherent value, that's when you can come across these huge, almost like paradigm shifts in human knowledge that we wouldn't have found otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we, we need to make this um, known to people. We need to get people uh, thinking about why we should be studying something. We should also be studying something that might not have direct benefits. Mm-hmm. So, but getting back to your podcast, yeah, what's it about? What's it called? So it is called Just Questions. Um, it's it's on SoundCloud and iTunes. Mm-hmm. I it's all about questions, like the title says. And for lack of creativity, I just call it Just Questions. <laughs> <laughs> Simple. Good point. No answers. Yeah. Just questions. So, so um, I, I I think I think most science uh, scientific research starts with questions, and if the questions are good, they are going to answer some good questions and come up with uh, um, come up with more questions um, mm-hmm. about that and and I and I so I actually started listening to podcasts to, in the beginning of my PhD and um, there, there are a lot of podcasts about discussing stories that have come from the answers answering different questions but there aren't um, any podcasts um, discussing the questions itself um, that which is where most of science starts um, 
starts from. Uh, so I kind of found my niche there. Um, mm. So I thought I should do something about research questions because other people are covering answers from research questions. Mm. So why not cover stories about questions? So it sounds like your PhD and the, the journey of going through your PhD is a very more sort of life-changing, invigorating process. You talk yes. about you know, coming out to Australia and finding this passion for ants and passion for communicating. And are we seeing a new, improved RAV, RAV 2.0? Uh, perhaps, yes, <laughs> I, I, I think so. Because I used to be really, really shy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to anyone on, in the corridor because I'm shy. Not because I'm rude, but um, but now I kind of get more confidence by talking to people uh, yeah. for my podcast. Because if I'm interested, really interested, I might just um, um, just reach reach to that person and talk to talk to them about different things, yeah. um, which I, I wouldn't otherwise have done if I were a master's student if I were in my master's during my master's now mm-hmm. yeah so in a way it is it is you know in a good way it is changing me I mean this conversation started when you approached me one afternoon and just said hey I saw your video I really like it yeah <laughs> <laughs> let's do stuff together and I had to I had to look up all your work I actually looked <laughs> up all your work um, uh, before um, come reaching you <laughs> so I, I knew kind of that, that, that kind of uh, gave me an idea of what you actually do and many of many of your ideas actually matched with mine uh, for example making videos and podcasts mm-hmm. and I thought I'll have a lot, lot to learn from you <laughs> so why not <laughs> I've got a lot to learn anyways <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that <laughs> do you feel compelled to, to reach out and communicate I mean doing research all the pressure is just on getting results and getting papers that nobody's really pushing you to to outreach yeah so nobody's pushing me to do outreach but um uh, so I I, I I i remember this speech by robert krulvich uh, from radio lab i don't know if you know him if you've listened to him <laughs> he, he's a great uh, science uh, communicator uh he's uh, he has a speech. He gave, gave a commencement speech at some university, mm-hmm. and he gives this example of uh, in some country. So scientists do their work. They they just always do their work, and they publish it in the journals. And they don't sometimes don't think much about telling what they did or telling about their research to general audience because some might not be interested, or maybe they they think they don't have enough time for all that. Or maybe they don't have um, any incentives to do so, uh, official incentives to do so. But uh, but the problem comes when you when you don't tell the stories, but others tell the stories. For example, mm-hmm. evangelists they they tell stories. That's how that's how they reach a lot of people. They tell stories and they tell stories that that are not logical. Mm-hmm. Um, and they reach a lot of people. But if you don't tell stories uh, about science, they will end up getting higher, uh, you know, higher say in the society. Mm-hmm. And and science would you might be doing very good research, but if you don't actually take that to the general uh, general public, mm-hmm. they might get stories from elsewhere, that, and they might not think the way you you would think. You would mm-hmm. want 
uh, people to think. So it's important to actually get the research, tell the stories to general audience, um, uh, and make them aware what is actually science and what what you actually can do with science. So it's a it's a responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think that's that's a motivation. You should. I I don't I don't want to not tell a story when I can. So. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you are. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to check out your podcast, just jump onto SoundCloud and look for Just Questions. Yeah. It's, also, it's you, also available on iTunes. On iTunes. And you have your own blog and website and all that. People can check out. Where is that? Yeah. So um, my blog is called Antis. A-N-T-I-S-T-S. It's on WordPress. Um, and you can uh, find my website um, in Wix. Um, so it is r-v-n-d-r-p-n dot wix dot com slash Ravindra R A V I N D R A, and you'll find all the links in in my website. Okay, or I think if you just Google your name, you're you come up right. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> all right, and you're on Twitter as well. Yes, uh, it is Ravindra underscore PN. R A V I N D R A underscore PN. Awesome. Well, we should probably wrap things up and sure get back to doing research and things. But thanks so much for sitting and having a chat. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to In Situ Science. You can follow me on Twitter with the handle at Jamo Henlin. You can follow in, in Situ Science with the handle at In Situ Science or check out the website InSituScience.com. Don't forget to, just, to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And it'd be great if you could tell your friends about the podcast and get them listening in as well. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. Bye.